Hello and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. This episode features two of EAB's top experts on community colleges, Christina Hubbard and Larissa Hussick. The two touch briefly on President Biden's proposal to make community college free to anyone who wants to attend, but they stress that regardless of what happens to that proposed legislation, it won't fix what ails the community college sector. Christina and Larissa discuss the three biggest institutional changes they'd like to see community colleges make, and they share examples of innovations that are already making a difference at several forward-thinking institutions. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. My name is Christina Hubbard, and I'm a senior director at EAB focused on community college research and student success strategies. I'm joined today by my colleague, Larissa Hussick, who is focused in the same areas. Welcome to the podcast, Larissa. Thanks, Christina. It's great to be here. Larissa's written recently about ways to streamline the onboarding experience at community colleges as a means of improving yield. And I want to get into that discussion in a little bit, but first, let's lay some groundwork. Even before the pandemic, community colleges were facing major structural challenges that are going to persist post-pandemic, with or without a cash infusion from the federal government. That's right. Uh, and speaking of a cash infusion from the federal government, you know, we, we've heard recently uh, about President Biden's American Families Plan, which has proposed $109 billion to pay for two years of free community college, uh, in his words, so that every student has the ability to obtain a degree or certificate. And obviously, this is making the rounds and the headlines and generating a lot of excitement. And I know uh, a couple of things that community college leaders in particular are excited about this proposal um, is that it appears to be a first dollar rather than a last dollar award, which we know uh, helps students who are, are most in need. And it also see, appears to allow for students to attend college on a part-time basis and still receive funding, which is absolutely critical for community colleges, as we know that majority of students uh, tend to attend on a part-time basis. So I think there's a lot to be excited here about this proposal. Yeah, I mean, on the surface, it seems like this should be a boon for community colleges, but I know you and I have talked about this quite a bit, and there are still many things that we should be cautious about. Do you want to dig into that a little bit about some of the red flags that you see here? Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, as we said, on its surface, a lot to be excited about here. Um, but I think there, you know, we take our, our uh, pragmatist eye, and especially considering the, the partisan environment in Washington, D.C., and just how difficult it is to get legislation through Congress, I think we should expect at the very least that there are going to be a lot of changes to this bill uh, before it gets passed, even if, you know, if it does get, get passed. And so uh, I think we'll have to probably right-size some, some expectations there. Um, another piece of caution is that it, at present, this bill appears to allow states to opt out of this program, opt out of providing the funding. And so again, you know, considering the, the polarized environment in, in DC right now, we'll have to see how that plays out. I think the other point of caution is that even if we do see the, this bill become law and we do see this influx of funding, um, while it's, it's again, absolutely fantastic for students, as far as institutions go, um, simply providing uh, institutions with more students and, and more funding for those students doesn't necessarily remedy some of the existing issues we're seeing with enrollment and student success on community college campuses. And so I think there's still a lot of work to be done 
uh, at institutions to make sure that even if they do get this influx of students, they are prepared to support them. They have the infrastructure in place, the support structures in place uh, to support students on, on their campuses, and then ultimately guide them towards whatever is next. I think that makes a lot of sense. And that's kind of one of the things that I'm most excited about with this proposal is that it not only is focused on funding for students, um, but it also provides institutions with some, some ability to put student success efforts um, into the limelight in the way that they should be. And um, we know that we have a lot of room to improve within the community college sector. And um, we're serving some of the highest need students um, in higher education. Um, and that requires a lot of additional support. So so um, I was really pleased to see that there is a focus on that as well. I think one of the things that's really interesting here is that when we look across the past year in light of the pandemic, um, we had an environment where a lot of schools presented a lot of innovation across a very short period of time. Um, we've been working in this environment that was truly dictated by the pandemic, and it forced us to really um, look at what students actually need in order to thrive on our campuses. Simply put, things just simply aren't going to go back to the way that they were uh, before the pandemic. And it doesn't matter how much cash is infused from the federal government. It's not going to fix those systemic problems that you were talking about before. But these are problems that we need to address regardless of what the federal government does here. Um, and I think that's really where we wanna focus our attention today. We wanna look at some of the challenges that community colleges should be focused on across the upcoming year. Um, and I think that those really fall into three categories. You know, The first being onboarding, making sure that those students who are actually interested in enrolling in our institutions have a clear pathway for getting into the seats in our classrooms. The second would be flexibility, making sure that those students who do enroll with, our, with us have the flexibility that they need in order to succeed in terms of curricular expectations, um, lengths of terms, you know, and things of that nature. And then finally, what that online experience is going to look like, because I, I think that's something that's not going away anytime soon. Larissa, I know you recently wrote about what community colleges can learn from the way for-profit institutions onboard their students. And we know that there's similar pressure on these schools to move students through the matriculation process as efficiently as possible so that students can begin classes right away. What's so different about the approach that for-profit schools use? That's a great question, and, and it's something that uh, a lot of our partners have been asking over the past year, especially as we've seen community college enrollments decline quite sharply, while for-profit enrollments have remained steady or even increased in, in some cases. And so what my research team did is we decided to secret shop the for-profit onboarding experience. And we had a researcher um, apply and, and progress through that experience to see what we could learn um, about how for-profit institutions were, were guiding students through that process. And there were a couple of, of, of key themes that came out of that that I think are absolutely applicable to the community college space. The first is that everyone is an advisor uh, in that onboarding experience. So it didn't matter whether the researcher was reaching out to talk about uh, a question about an application or uh, a financial aid form. Every single time they contacted the, the institution, the person on the other end of the phone immediately guided them into a more substantive discussion of long-term goals and how that institution was going to propel the student towards their long-term goals. And we know from um, you know, lots of research on advising that, that having those conversations that connect the current experience to long-term uh, goals and, and desires is a great way to build student engagement momentum. 
Of course, what this also required was that every single student-facing staff member during that onboarding period had some degree of knowledge about the entirety of the experience. And so they could speak um, from an informed perspective, even if you know, they weren't themselves, for example, a financial aid professional, they knew what the uh, appropriate forms were, they knew who to contact, they knew the right resources. And so that also meant that the student wasn't bouncing from phone call to phone call or office to office. Uh, to, to progress through the process. And we think that's really important, especially in the virtual world, um, as, as the practice of office hop, hopping becomes even more laborious when you know, you're, you're dealing with phones that aren't being answered or um, Zoom times that aren't um, you know, aligned with, with your own schedule. So the idea that every student-facing staff member um, was knowledgeable about the entire experience, was able to have those long-term conversations with students, just made the process all the more seamless. The second theme that, that we came across while, while secret shopping the for-profit experience um, was that the institution itself was responsible for the momentum of students' progression through the process, not the student. And so what that meant is that when our researcher uh, was working on their application and got partway through and then clicked out for a few days, they, they received an email, they received follow-up saying, hey, we noticed you haven't finished your application. Anything we can do to help? Can we reach out uh, and, and schedule a conversation? Do you need extra support here? Um, and, and while you know, some may argue that that was a bit um, intrusive uh, as, as far as, as tracking the, the student's progress, I think what it reflected was that the institution saw it as their responsibility and their priority to guide students through that onboarding process. Um, I, I think too often um, community colleges take the and, and um, community college staff members take the um, perspective that, you know, if students want to be here, they will get through the process. Um, and, and especially right now during the pandemic, when our students are, are navigating so many other challenges, um, we need to flip the script on that. And then we need to, to ensure that it's institutions themselves who are taking the responsibility of um, navigating students through the process of um, managing their, their momentum and their progression rather than expecting students uh, to do that all on their own. I think that's such an important point. You know, when we think about the challenges that so many of our students are facing as they're considering going to school, um, certainly it's important to streamline that onboarding process. Um, I know that we've seen that with a lot of our partners, um, especially those of, those of our partners who are using Navigate, which is our student success management system. Um, the idea there is to actually take a hard look at the steps in the process for enrollment. And number one, make sure that all of those steps are actually necessary. And then number two, make sure that it's super simple for students to be able to track where they are in that process. So I agree that those relationships that they're building on campus are really important, but we also need to make it super clear on how far they are in that process so that students understand how much is left before they actually can begin those classes. So I, I really like that approach of, um, sort of blurring those boundaries of institutional roles, you know, that um, if you are an advisor, it is not just academic advising that you need to be knowledgeable about, but at least the basics of financial aid. And similarly with financial aid, helping students to understand um, what sorts of programs are actually eligible for financial aid. So that regardless of where the student shows up, they can get the answers to the questions that they have. Um, so I really love that, love that innovation there. One of the things that you talked about there that I think is really important is 
the flexibility that students need. You know, we need to make sure that our students are getting the information that they need in a way that is accessible for them. And I, I think that's actually a great segue into the next section that we are talking about. We know the majority of our students enrolled in community colleges enroll part-time. They're balancing their academic responsibilities along with their professional and personal responsibilities like parenting. This makes for a pretty precarious balance. And you and I had the opportunity to work together on a research project a couple of years ago. Um, we had a ton of different practices that really helped to support those part-time students. But one that always stood out to me was what we now refer to as high flex, this idea of recording a live class so that regardless of whether a student can be there in person, they can still access the content. Um, and as we talked about many times back then, when I think back to the students that I served in the community college where I worked, um, I think that this would have made it so much easier for students to stay on pace. You know, if they were military members who were suddenly sent TDY, they could stay in with class. If they were a parenting student whose child suddenly was sick one evening or the babysitter canceled, they still can stay on track with those classes. If there was some kind of a medical emergency, they're still able to stay on pace with everybody else that's in the classroom. And I think this is one of those practices that came to light much more in the pandemic. Um, and I, I don't think it's going away. What do you think? I agree. Um, I, I'm sure there are some folks um, who, who are eager for us to return to a, a pre-pandemic way of doing things. Um, and, and, and certainly, you know, there, there are some um, more status quo or legacy practices that, that we'll get back to once we, we uh, get past the, the pandemic. But I think this core principle around flexibility and accessibility. Um, I, I think it's it's here to stay, um, you know, if not driven by institutions then certainly driven by students, right? We've given them a taste of how uh, flexible higher ed can be. And as you pointed out, especially for our students with other off-campus commitments, um, they need that. They need that to get through higher education. And so they're going to continue to um, demand some of that flexibility. Um, and, and, you know, if necessary, they'll, they'll you know, as the, the term goes, they'll vote with their feet, right? They'll go to the institutions that, that provide them um, with that flexibility. And so while I, I don't necessarily think that every institution is going to be offering high flex options for every course. Uh, I do think that we're going to see um, increasing flexibility in terms of greater scheduling options, um, term lengths, uh, timing uh, in terms of our, our courses. And we're already starting to see interest in this um, even beyond the two-year sector. So I also work with our four-year partners here at EAB. We've seen a significant increase in requests about things like condensed terms during the pandemic um, as institutions start to prepare for a post-pandemic reality. And, and condensed terms are something that we've been talking about in the community college space for years now um, and, and hadn't really taken off in the four-year space. But we're seeing uh, more and more institutions ask about some of these more flexible student-centric policies that they can start to implement and put in place for the post-pandemic world so they can still meet that student need for accessibility. Yeah, and I think that's a big deal. You know, when, when I look back at my undergrad, I did attend one of those institutions that had various different term lengths, you know, and I saw it with the students that I served when I was working at Northern Virginia Community College. Um, the fact of the matter is that, you know, there are many students out there that benefit from being able to focus on just one or two classes at a time 
So I I just really think that flexibility is going to be critical going forward. Um, I think that one of the things we saw across the past year is that when students were managing so many different priorities, um, it it became so important that we address more of their needs. Um, I know that you know, a hot topic in the higher ed space right now has been related to mental health and some of the increased challenges that students are facing. Larissa, I know your team has done a lot of work in this space, and I'm I'm curious what you're finding. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, one thing that's clear is that that the um, increase in in mental health concerns is not a new thing um, amongst our students or, or in higher ed, but we absolutely have seen a tremendous spike um, and in students reporting serious mental health concerns over the course of the pandemic. And we hear that across the board, across student groups, across institutional sectors. Um, and, and we've heard from many of our institutions who have tried to adapt their mental health services into the virtual space that oftentimes demand is just off the charts uh, for, for these mental health services. Uh, another thing that, that my research team came across is as part of our recent work on understanding students of the pandemic, we um, did a, a a qualitative analysis of student social media posts, um, particularly students who were posting about their college experience and comparing that to to posts from pre-pandemic. And one of the things that was really striking and really stood out to our team was the sense of loss that is reflected in students' posts over the past year and how um, despite the fact that that many of us see this pandemic period as as hopefully coming towards the end, um, you know, there's the light at the end of the tunnel in terms of vaccination and and treatment. One of the things we've noticed is that this this sense of loss um, has actually increased since the beginning of the year. Um, And and we're seeing students really struggling um, as as they're trying to navigate uh, attending college with, again, all of the off-campus challenges that we've already mentioned. And and this is something that I think institutions are going to have to grapple with even after the pandemic period ends. Um, So we've also done some research and and looked into the work um, in in disaster response theory which are are the the folks who come in uh, after a natural disaster and and help see to the community needs and including mental health needs that that a community may have after a natural disaster. And and one of the the insights from from that work is that this sense of loss and in some cases disillusionment uh, oftentimes lasts much longer than the emergency or the disaster itself does. And so there's this after effect where where folks are still grappling with um, the impacts of, of the the disaster situation, still trying to reconcile, trying to get back on their feet um, and and try to see um, how they can move move past this emergency. Um, But but it's something that that lasts beyond the the immediate and present danger. And I think we can can take some lessons from that work when we think about serving student mental health um, in the pandemic and importantly, post-pandemic. I think we're going to continue to see students struggling um, with this this sense of loss, uh, in some cases, as you know, I mentioned disillusionment, um, struggling with motivation, even once we are back to normal. And so I think one of the critical things for institutions and community colleges to focus on now is what is our plan for post-pandemic stress response or post-pandemic student support? Um, how are we extending some of our pandemic era innovations? And again, that flexibility that we're providing students uh, as, as far as mental health support, um, how are we extending that beyond just the pandemic period? And what are we preparing for in terms of meeting student needs in that new normal? Um, one, one thing I'll, I'll mention that 
we're, we're starting to see more institutions do and, and that I think is, is a best practice is figuring out how to embed mental health support and well-being content directly into student coursework and interactions. Um, so this means taking um, principles like meditation and mindfulness um, and finding ways for, for faculty um, or for student-facing staff to, to work discussions or activities around these practices directly into everyday student interactions so that every student uh, no matter, um, you know, whether they self-identify as needing some of that extra support, every student has access to that well-being support. And again, as we as we start to look towards that new normal, I think that's going to be especially important. Yeah, absolutely. I can see where that would definitely be um, be a major challenge and, and your, your passion for the topic definitely comes through. Um, Speaking of what to expect from our students, we know that the high school juniors and seniors right now have been in an online world for about a year and a half. And overall, what I'm hearing is that they don't really love the whole online medium. So I'm curious, what does that mean for our community college partners? What, what does this look like going forward? Yeah, that, that's a great point. And, and if we can be honest, who can blame them, right? Um, if we think about how uh, even our higher ed institutions were struggling to make that transition and, and to prepare and, and many, you know, if not all higher ed institutions had at least some experience in some course teaching online or navigating the online. Then we look at our high schools who, um, you know, had to make that 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 pivot entirely from scratch. Um, I, I think, you know, even the, the term online education at this point is somewhat uh, contested folks prefer something like emergency remote instruction because that's really what's happening, especially in the K-12 space. So I, I understand uh, the, the backlash that, that many of our, our future students and, and our adolescents are, are expressing. It makes sense given their current experience. But I wouldn't, I, I certainly wouldn't bank on that as reflective of, you know, the 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 end of online or or any sort of future indicator about the popularity of online. Well I'm thrilled to hear that online education is not going away. Um, as you know, Larissa, I have been teaching online for Northern Virginia Community College now for about 12 years. Um, and one of the reasons that I am so excited to serve there is because of how much thought they've put into that online experience for their students. Um, they really try to make it comparable to the campus experience that their in-person students get to uh, get to enjoy. Um, so, you know, I think that there are three different areas there that really make that experience for students a little bit better. So first of all, they have extensive virtual advising support. So students can connect with advisors on everything from disability services to career counseling. Even if they are a veteran student, they're able to connect with um, somebody who specializes in military benefits. Um, so I think that giving students that kind of access to these robust um, advising services is, is really critical. Second, they've really honed in on the importance of belongingness. Um, I remember a few years ago, there were a few of us that piloted this common reading experience um, where students from around the world uh, were reading the same book, um, you know, and it really just kind of, they had discussions related to it and it just was a really rich experience. And then one other thing that they did was they hired a student life specialist. Um, so again, this was somebody that they hired specifically to try to figure out what students that were enrolled exclusively online needed 
in order to feel connected to the campus. Um, they tried a few different things like building out a um, online student union and um, having events, especially for those online learners. Um, and I think that when we have those kinds of experiences, it really does help students to feel more connected to their institution. Um, but I think one of the most impactful strategies that I've seen them use was live streaming speakers. So regardless of whether it was um, somebody coming to campus for a um, in a public forum, they they would live stream that so that regardless of whether a student could actually physically be there on campus, um, they could still engage with that content. This is also really important when they're hiring senior leaders, for example, um, and they'll live stream those uh, town hall forums in order to make sure that all students can see who might be leading the institution going forward. But they don't stop there. Um, I think one of the other things that I've seen there um, at NOVA is a, a, a high level of focus on LMS support, making sure that students understand how to use, you know, Canvas or before that Blackboard or, or whatever LMS the school is using. Um, they also have these student success coaches that are there to um, help students get back on track. So if they're facing some kind of a technological issue or um, maybe they have a non-curricular barrier, like, um, like maybe they're running into food insecurity issues or they lost their job or, you know, something like that. These student success specialists actually can intervene proactively um, with the faculty members just sort of raising a flag that they're concerned about their students. Um, but they also wanna make that academic experience really rich for students as well. So they even have an online librarian who is there to make sure that students that study online are getting the same kinds of access to resources to write those term papers and um, all of the other rich experiences that you get from a library. So I, I think that's been really valuable. I know this is one of the areas that your team has been digging into with, um, with the virtual services user experience audit. Um, I'm kind of curious uh, what that looks like. Absolutely. Um, well, well, first, I, I think what it uh, focuses on and what our, our end goal is, is to build out a, an online experience like the one that Nova has created for its students. And I think the, the success of Nova's online coursework um, over the, the past you know, decade plus is a reflection of their investment in the student experience. And so what this uh, virtual service user experience audit is, is focused on is identifying the pain points um, in students' non-virtual environments that make interacting with those virtual services all the more difficult. So you talked about some of the investments that, that NOVA has made in terms of um, student engagement opportunities, student support services, academic support services that really build out a user experience that is engaging, that is responsive to students' needs, and doesn't isolate the student from the campus, but rather brings them into the fold. And that's really what is at the core of, of user experience, right? Do, do students feel connected to the institution? Are the resources accessible? Um, do they uh, respond to or, or fulfill a need that students have? Are they in demand? And so our user experience audit um, allows institutions to identify some of those uh, student-facing pain points in the, the virtual services or um, online courses that, that they take and, and start to remedy those um, as, they, as they consider scaling um, or, or broadening their, their online services. And so I think that's something that's going to be as, as um, you know, we think about the future of, of online and, and demand for online, I think focus on the experience and, and how the non-virtual environment and experience of, of students 
audience lives interacts with um, and is supported by their virtual experience, that's going to be key uh, to, to the success of online programs and services going forward. And I think it's also going to be what students increasingly look for when they, they shop for, for institutions. Larissa, I think we could talk about this for hours, um, but I know that we are coming up on time. Um, so in closing, I, I just wanted to say that when we look at what students want and need out of higher education right now and in coming years, community colleges really are the best position to provide it. They're low cost. They tend to have a lot of career relevancy, and many times their programs are shorter and more market responsive. However, winning on these things will require sustained investment in an increasingly competitive environment. Larissa, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Your insights are incredibly valuable. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening. Please join us next week when our guests share strategies for women who work in higher education and who are also working to push through barriers to reach their career goals. As always, thank you for your time.